You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yankees Magazine Podcast. I'm John Schwartz. I'm the deputy editor of the Yankees Magazine. Joining me from Yankee Stadium, we have our editor-in-chief, Al Sanasiri. How you doing, Al? Great. Hi, everybody. And we actually have a special guest with us right now. We have Yankees Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer Tony Bruno with us to discuss, Al, your feature in the spring issue on the 50th anniversary of George Steinbrenner buying the New York Yankees. Tony, thanks for joining us. Great. It's great to be here. So, Al, I, I think we should start right there. You know, it's obviously it's still spring training. There's still, you know, news every day. We're kind of into that point now where, you know, you start uh, looking at your watch a little bit, looking at your calendar and trying to count down until March 30th, obviously. But while we wait to get there, Al, you spent so much time and so much effort into really capturing the story of this latest era of Yankees baseball in the feature conveniently titled Golden Era about that moment 50 years ago when George Steinbrenner bought the team and created the New York Yankees as we know them today. Yeah, you know, it was a really unique experience for me in terms of all the stories that I've ever written. One, it's probably the most comprehensive story that I've put together in 20 years uh, doing this job for the Yankees. Also unique, and Antonio, I think, will, will get a kick out of this, that there's not a lot of stories you write where you interview just about everybody you report to. <laughs> so from better make it good yeah exactly just like this podcast episode uh you know from our ownership to uh lon trost and randy levine to of course tony um it was something that at first was a little bit intimidating of a project because besides getting it right just the amount of information and, and obviously the level of importance in documenting this for our flagship publications, you know, a little daunting. Uh, I'm glad I, I had an opportunity to do it at 20 years into the job as opposed to 20 minutes into the job, but it really <laughs> became a labor of love. You know, Tony, you were somebody when, you know, we finally sat down to do the interview. You know, there were some people that I interviewed for it that blew me away. There were others that were just, you know, gave me a lot of really good information. You were, you know, one of the people that blew me away. Um, and, and in particular with two really special stories and two stories that through all the research I did, I could not have possibly found anywhere else. And the first one, of course, was this anecdote that Max Margulis had shared with you years ago. And I'll start right there and just kind of ask you to to rehash that because it's just so important in the history of sports and yet so coincidental. Yeah, Max Margulis uh, was really a character one of the characters, you know, that makes this place, this Yankee family special. As you know, the boss, I'll call him Mr. Steinbrenner for most of the time, because that's what I called him when I was with him. Uh, he he was really loyal to people in his life. Uh, so if you were here when I started in 2000, there were college teammates, there were, prof- you know, uh, there were professionals that he watched play, that he worked with, and various other forms of life. He was just a very loyal guy, and he had 
these folks around and they were with him for many, many years and just had some great exposure and experience. And Max was one of those guys. And uh, Max was sitting there talking to Max. Max was a great storyteller. And he, he, he said to me, he says, you know, I'm responsible for George buying the Yankees. Now, he called him George. He, he could do that. He said, you know, I was responsible for George buying the Yankees. And I said, really? I said, Max, tell me, tell me how that happened. And he says, yeah, I used to own this bar in, in Buffalo. And, you know, George used to come to the bar in Buffalo all the time. And he, uh, it was like one of the first sports bars in, in this day. You know, it was in the early 70s. And he says, George said to me, he says, Max, I want to go to the sports writers dinner in New York City. I said, how, you, you find any way to figure out how I can get there? And he knew Max knew everybody. And a lot of sports writers came in the in his tavern at the time. And so Max said, sure. He's the guy across the table from you, across the bar from you. He's the head of the sports writers. And he give him a hundred bucks, he'll give you a ticket. And so he says, that's as simple as that. He goes, simple as that. You'll be there. So so he says, sure enough, George buys the ticket and he goes to the to the dinner and he goes with the intention that he's going to, he wants to buy, a, I think at the time they were the Boston Patriots, but maybe they had just become the New England Patriots or they were in the process of changing. Max told the story, it was Boston Patriots. He said he wanted to buy a football team. And, you know, if you knew Mr. Steinbrenner, you knew that he just had this passion for sports and passion for all sports. He owned part of the Cleveland Pipers. He had owned at one time part of the, the Chicago Bulls. Uh, he, he always had an interest. He tried to buy the Cleveland Indians. So he always had aspirations to be a sports owner. And his latest aspiration when he spoke with Max was to buy a football team. So he, he goes to this dinner and he, he, and he tells me the story of how the boss related back to him that he's sitting at this table and the guy he's trying to speak to is a big guy and he's, he's literally drinking left-handed and right-handed, pounding away drinks at the at the dinner and mr steinbrenner is trying to get a word in edgewise to him to try to find out if his team is for sale or he knows his team is for sale he wants to figure out how does he get his hat in the ring to, to buy his team and he just can't make any headway with him trying to get his get his ear and introduce himself and tell him that he wants to buy his football team so he he finally gets exasperated and he turns to the guy to the left of him he says you know i come all this way buy a ticket to this event. I want to talk to this guy about buying his football team, and he won't even give me the time of day. So the guy who turns out to be Michael Burke from CBS or from the Yankees, the president of the Yankees at the time, but he was, it was when CBS owned the team, he looked at him and he says, why do you want to buy a football team? He says, buy a baseball team. He says, we're selling the Yankees. And that was the first step, how I understood it and how Max described it, that led him to his interest and led him to the conversations that ultimately resulted in him buying the team. So a little bar, a little tavern in Buffalo, New York, is where the seeds of this 50-year ownership started. And thanks to Max Margulis and his introductions led to uh, what has turned out to be the greatest ownership in sports. And I think it's important to point out because obviously, look, anyone who knows anything about the history of the Yankees, you know, the Yankees legacy of success started long before 1973. But when we talk about this as a golden era, what we're talking about is CBS sold the team to him at a loss. I mean, you can't even fathom that at this point, essentially. But that's where that change started happening. Obviously, you know, business interests started Sports in general started becoming a much bigger business, but this idea of what was created over the, that five decades, a half century of the Steinbrenner family's ownership, you know, you start seeing it right there. And it didn't take long until those, you know, mid to late 70s teams are starting to win again after just a bunch of years, really, in the wilderness. And it all kind of carried from there. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, he, you know, it's it's one of those things. Like, you know, we all talk about what was the price of gas twenty years ago, and what was the the price of this and that, and the idea that the Yankees can be bought at such a price, and particularly at less than it had sold for. I think it's the only one of the only times in sports history that a franchise sold for less than what it was purchased, and it was the New York Yankees. is is just uh, is just remarkable, and. Uh, you're right. I mean, he, uh, there, there's a lot of things. Mr. Steinbrenner was a lot of things to a lot of people. And probably the most impressive thing he was was smart and had great vision. So he saw the team, the brand. He saw the history for what it was. And, you know, it was a no-brainer for him to to try to, to pursue it. And I don't know if anyone saw what sports would become, but he certainly saw it bigger and better than what it was at the time. And like you said, it didn't take very long, and, and the team was back at its uh, its successful ways. So, Tony, you you know, you talk about him being a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, speaking as somebody who started as a media relations assistant in Tampa, and you know, having to uh, you know work with him on a daily basis, uh, short period every day. But one thing he was to a lot of people was somewhat intimidating. Um, you spent a lot of time working closely with him, but one of the experiences that kind of intimidated me just in hearing about was the long drive from Ocala back to Tampa. I think your quote was you were nervous two times in driving a car. Once when you were with your dad getting your driver's license or learning how to, how to pass the driver's test. And then this situation, can you kind of bring us into that car ride? And what was that experience like for you? If I had to list a number of days in my professional career that stand out, it was that day. We were in Ocala for a horse sale. I was sitting next to him when he bought Bellamy Road, which turned out to be the favorite in the Kentucky Derby a year or so later. And, you know, I'd spent some time there. And for whatever reason, he and I were going back to Tampa. I had planned to go back. I don't think he had planned to go back. But for whatever reason, he decided that he wanted to come back. And you know, we only live a few minutes apart from one another. So he said, you, you'll drive me home. And I, I, I could remember the, my stomach, the pit in my stomach that formed that day, because I've heard all of these stories about how impatient he was on the phone and driving from Ocala to Tampa. The cell signals back in that time would drop and he, he would slam the phone on the, on the dashboard. And I mean, he just was, you know, you could imagine he was not a man of a lot of patience and being in a two hour ride. Uh, you know, with phone calls dropping and things like that. So I had heard all these stories. And I remember I was waiting for him. I pulled the car up and he was still inside. And I called back to Tampa and I called the colleague and I said, listen, if we end up in a ditch and, and, uh, and we both don't make it, I said, it probably wasn't an accident. Because <laughs> I'm not sure how I'm going to get through. I'm not sure I'm going to get through this two-hour drive. So we get in the car and we start to drive. And I, I was driving, honest to God, it was a Mercury Sable. That's what I that's what I was driving at that time. And he got in the car and he said, eh, it's a nice car. He says, is it right? OK. I said, yeah, it rides OK. And I assumed that he had never been in the front seat of a Mercury Sable. So it was something new to him. So we, we got in the car and we headed back to Tampa. And, you know, we we by that time had really developed a great relationship. There was never a lack of intimidation because that's just what he carried. And he carried it in a way that I look back on it and just made me a better made me better at what I did so I, I can look back and appreciate it. I probably didn't appreciate it as much then, but he, he certainly was intimidating. But for whatever reason, I, I had 
this isolated time with him that day, and we drove from Ocala back to Tampa. And he, it, it, I'm not even sure how it came up, but we started talking about him buying the team. And he describes this meeting, and he walked into Paley's office, the head of CVS. He told me, he said he was shaking. And to hear him describe the fact that he was shaking was just something that was so unimaginable with someone with the personality of Mr. Steinbrenner, that he was nervous. And he walked in his office, he told me, and you can picture an office in Manhattan in the 70s. It was dark wood and very classic looking office. And he said that he never turned his chair. He sat down at his desk. He had his back to him the entire meeting, looking out the window as Mr. Steinbrenner pleaded his case as to why he wanted to buy the team and how he was going to buy the team. And he, he heard him out and he said to him, do you have real money? That's what he remember Mr. Steinbrenner said to him. Do you have any real, do you have real money? He said to him. And he says, yes, sir, I do. We have real money. We have real money to, to make this purchase. He says, well, if you have real money, then we've got a deal. And there in that office with the guy only turning around at the last moment, he made his pitch and sold Paley on the idea that he can buy his team. And it really was something to hear how him, who, you know, we all had seen him, you know, by that time, I mean, he had owned the team 30 years. When I was talking to him, uh, the idea that someone wouldn't pay him the respect or pay him homage in a meeting just seemed so unimaginable. And in the end, he had the personality, he had the the vision, the sight to to, to make this presentation and, and convinced CBS that he was the right purchaser. One thing that comes through so clearly in, in your story, Al, and certainly from your from your anecdotes, Tony, it's strange for me, maybe I'm a kid of the eighties, obviously, you know, I'm in New York. My my knowledge of George Steinbrenner and the Steinbrenner family is Yankee Stadium and the Yankees. When you're down here in Tampa, you know, you're you're seeing just how much bigger the Steinbrenner name is than just the Yankees. And also it, it just the it, what really came across cuz again, I, I started working for the Yankees in 2014. Hal had been running things for for a while at that point. It was a, it is a different operation in a lot of ways the family, but Al, everyone you spoke to for your story, the devotion with which they spoke about him and, and and the care that they kept repeating that he showed them in times when they needed it. I mean, it, it came through so much. And I'd love for both of you to talk a little bit about that, because like I said, the Yankees are one part of the Seinbrenner family, but as they continue to show, it's just one part. It, it's not their whole thing. It's not all they do. And you can see that in the way that, you know, for all the sometimes bluster and for all the some the ways that you know he was written about in his years he was very careful you know not to let everyone know about how much he was doing and, and all the different ways he was working for people yeah I, I i grew up in new york as well so i was i i didn't relocate to tampa prior to me joining the yankees but i didn't relocate to tampa until 94 uh so i you know i grew up 70s 80s early 90s experiencing mr steinbrenner's ownership as a fan and as a new yorker and, you know, and as we all know, he had his ups and downs during that, that time period. And, and there were people who loved him. There was people that hated him. And there usually wasn't a lot of in-between. Uh, looking back, I think everybody looked back and know that he had a passion for this team and he had a passion for the city. 
but sometimes he expressed that in ways that not everyone agreed with. And, you know, you look at the Billy Martin firings and hirings and, and other, you know, issues that may have occurred. And so, so I had a very mixed feeling about him when I came in based on his public perception. When you move to Tampa, he was a knight on the, on the white horse coming to town. I mean, he, he was bigger than anything here and all in a positive way. I mean, he just had, he, he did so much for this town that, you know, he was the savior in a, in, a, in a lot of efforts, whether it was the Florida Orchestra or if it was a school or a little league or, you know, he, he just, he made a huge, huge impact in this town. And I really got to understand a different aspect of his personality. And this is prior to, to working here. Once I started working, I, I, you know, quickly understood some of that other side of him. And um, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll tell this quick story. My wife had cancer when uh, a few years before I started with the Yankees and she relapsed. She was young, you know, very young at the time, uh, you know, just over 30. And she had uh, cancer, bout cancer for the second time. And I only knew him a year. I was working for him a year at the time. And what he did for me, my family is, I could never, ever forget. And he, you know, he saw to it that my wife got the best care at Sloan Kettering. We were living in Tampa. I had a three-year-old son at the time. My wife had to go to an autogalous stem cell transplant and spend 10 weeks in the hospital in quarantine. And he took care of us, helped us get there, helped us stay there, got us to the right doctors. You know, he, he was tough on me the whole time because I was still working when I was there. But he had that side of him that came with a lot of intensity, but at the same time, he had this other side where he had compassion and he had uh, caring that uh, was hard to describe and hard for people from the outside of the organization to really understand. I think Tony hit the nail on the head. I think it was really, I think it remains really hard for people outside of the organization to really comprehend it. It's And, you know, stories like the one Tony just told, which are so intimate, so personal, give it a lot of context and actually help make people understand it as opposed to just, you know, the cliches he was giving. He was such a great guy. He did so much like that's a really great example. And, you know, to, to answer your question, John, I think whether it was Tony, whether it was Randy Levine, whether it was, you know, Mr. Steinbrenner's children, um, meaning Hal and, and Jessica and Jenny, or even somebody like Brian Smith, or who, who runs our community relations department, or Debbie Nicolosi, who's been, you know, office manager for for many many decades. They all shared different stories of ways that he was compassionate to them, and the way that they saw that he was compassionate to other people outside of the organization. The great thing, and Tony, you shared this as well. Probably one of the first things you said when we talked about the things he did for others. And so did every one of the people that I just mentioned was this credo or mindset that he refused. And, and I use that word carefully, but refused to let anyone know other than the person he was helping know what he was actually doing. And he lived by it. He didn't talk about it like in a preachy way or anything like that, but he did things truly for the right reason to help the person he wanted to help and, and actually went out of his way, it seemed. And, and Brian talked about this a lot, really went out of his way to make sure people didn't know about it. Uh, so he wasn't looking for credit. He just wanted to do the right thing. And, you know, again, kind of harking back to, to what Tony talked about. 
I don't know that there's really a better word, honestly, than just being compassionate. I mean, he was amazingly compassionate as, as well as uh, as tough as he was on people and demanding. So be it. But the compassion was unlike many human beings that, that have walked the face of the earth. And that came out in every interview that I did, even when I wasn't talking to the person about his philanthropic efforts or the things he did for other people. Somehow that came up like in the interview with Brian Cashman, that somehow came up. I didn't even bring it up. But yeah, just just really an amazingly compassionate person. And that came through really clearly in the story, Al. It's, it's such a comprehensive story. And, and and I mentioned this actually a couple episodes ago when we were going through the table of contents of the spring issue before it came out. And, you know, look, we're, we're the New York Yankees. This is the Yankees Magazine podcast. You pick up a copy of Yankees Magazine. You see a big story about George Steinbrenner. I'm sure you're not expecting necessarily to hear about this incredibly compassionate man unless you have heard these stories and i can tell you i had not heard almost any of these stories i came through reading your story editing your story learning so much about not just the man george steinbrenner but certainly the ethos that you still see in the way that his children continue to run the organization continue to run all of their charitable initiatives and everything like that and and how much that ties back to the legacy that he started. And again, it, it just connects it to as, as we enter now, you know, year 51 of the Steinbrenners owning the Yankees and you look toward the future, you, you see the, the legacy that this is all built on and, and, and the foundation for it all. So I know it was very special for me to learn it. And I am really excited that, you know, everyone can read this. And I think that we are presenting certainly a very fair take, certainly an honest take. I I don't think that we pretend that he wasn't a difficult person to some people in some ways. I don't think we pretend that these things didn't happen. But I think we also just give incredible context to explain just what he was doing, who he was, and why it is so meaningful 50 years later. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I'll, I'll piggyback on that with one question, one last question for Tony. The second part of our interview, if you remember, Tony, was not just about Mr. Steinbrenner, but about Hal, who uh, obviously has um, been the managing general partner uh, for uh, more than a decade and a half at this point. And, and you know, one of the things that, that I know I kind of shouted from the rooftops was the level of consistency with which he's run this team with on the field. And what I mean is, you know, just in terms of this team being a consummate playoff contending team, having won a championship in 2009. And that's something that, you know, you said that was really, really interesting was you talked about all of the really incredible and groundbreaking and and ultimately legendary business ventures that you've been a part of, that Hal spearheaded, that Mr. Steinbrenner started, whether it's the Yes Network, whether it's Legends Hospitality, all the different things. But something that really resonated with me was how, no matter what things are done and what what ventures are started and and successful and all that stuff it all still starts and ends with the the quality of play on the field and you talked about that and you also talked about Hal's kind of quiet intensity and dedication and I just wanted you to expound on that before we wrap it up here I've had the pleasure of knowing Hal over 20 years and you know Hal has evolved it, it was hard for anyone to really be uh, a, 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 
you know, work, you know, it was hard to, George was such the number one guy that it was hard for there to be a really another number two. And I know his dad used to talk about bringing young elephants into the tent. It was one of his quotes. And he, he never really, I think he said that, but I don't think he ever really practiced it. And so Hal and Hank and Jenny and Jess, they all kind of stood on the sidelines as their dad, who was just so bigger than life. And it's impossible for uh, someone like Mr. Steinbrenner to, to exist today. You know, there might be some others that are out there still, but he was such a unique presence that it, he was the man in charge. And, and um, you know, when Hal was thrusted into the role that he was when it was time for him to step up, he really quickly gave it his all. I mean, Hal had other business interests that he was working on. And, and while he still is involved with those, the Yankees became truly his number one concern and his number one priority. And he has a different approach than his dad. You know, I, I, I've said this many times is each of his children and his grandchildren to, the, to some degree all have a little part of him. And the one part that I really think is is consistent with Hal, and, and, I, and I think there's a misnomer out there. It's one of the things that bothers me when I read or, or I see on, on social media is, is Hal's interest in caring about winning. He really, truly cares about putting a product on the field that has a chance every season to win a world championship. And that's, like his dad, that's his main focus. And he lives it, he breathes it, and he's focused on it. He's got his own way about doing it. His father's a tough act to follow, uh, but I think he's done a great job. And if you look at the winning that we've done in under Hal's tenure, I, I think it speaks for itself. Playoffs, you know, become have become increasingly more difficult to navigate with extra teams in the playoffs and more rounds, and it's not not easy to do. But make no mistake, that's his true focus. And that's what he, he, he's focused on. He just goes about it a little bit differently, but boy, does he care. And it's truly important to him. And I think that's a great place to transition here because we're going to take a break, but our next segment, we're going to talk about Anthony Rizzo, where uh, Hal Steinbrenner, along with Brian Cashman, certainly showed the commitment to winning this past offseason. And the fans are absolutely going to look forward to getting to enjoy for years to come. Tony, thank you so much for joining us and telling us these stories. Thank you so much for the help that you gave Al. Al, I apologize for speaking for you, but I know that you agree. The help you gave Al in both putting the story together, but also helping collect people and encouraging people to open up about this because it made such a difference and it really helped us present this incredibly full and robust portrait of the boss. So thanks for joining us on this and thanks for everything you did. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. Thank you. We will be back after a quick break, and we'll talk, like I said, about Anthony Rizzo. So stick with us. Hi, this is Garrett Cole. You're listening to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, this is Aaron Judge. You're listening to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. Welcome back to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. That was, a, I, I'd say, a really fun conversation uh, that we got to have with Tony Pruno about just the origins of the Steinbrenner family's uh, ownership of the Yankees and certainly Al Sanasiri's awesome story about it in our spring issue. But right now, I'm joined by our executive editor, Nathan Makaborski, to speak about another story in that spring magazine, actually our cover story for subscribers, which is about another guy who came back to the Yankees this year. Maybe it got a little less attention than some of the other moves the Yankees made, but Nate... I think you do a pretty good job in this story of showing just how vital the return of Anthony Rizzo is going to be to the 2023 Yankees. And I love the story, and I'm excited to get to talk to you about it. Thanks, John. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, for, for people to read it. You know, Anthony Rizzo uh, has proven in a, a short time here in New York just uh, how important he is to this team. And, uh, you know... As you kind of alluded to, like Aaron Judge certainly, you know, got a lot of the headlines this offseason uh, when he resigned. But, you know, even that day when Aaron held his press conference at Yankee Stadium, he spoke about how the Yankees bringing Anthony Rizzo back was really important to him. You know, he's a, he's a clubhouse leader uh, on par with with Judge or, or with really anybody in the league. I mean, Rizzo is a guy that every player seems to look up to and respect for just you know the way he goes about his business the the type of player he is defensively and offensively uh he just brings so much to this team and um you know i, I was really just thrilled to have the opportunity to to write about him in in this issue we've spoken about this a lot you and me nate including on the podcast i, sh- I should mention but I think one thing, there's a lot of things from the 2022 season that kind of got lost. Uh, you know, I, I'm working right now. I've been writing a lot about Garrett Cole setting the franchise single season strikeout record, which I feel like, you know, who, who even remembers that they have it essentially because it happened on the same day that Judge uh, tied the record and happened. He tied on the day Judge tied the record. He broke it on the day Judge broke the record. Obviously, people remember it, but, you know, there was a lot of oxygen sucked up by Judge. But one thing that truly did get forgotten, I think, by a lot of people was. Judge struggled for the first few weeks of the season, and certainly there was all the talk about the contract stuff from the offseason, and they didn't come to a deal beforehand, and then Judge is struggling and whatever, and I think obviously you knew that he would get it together. I don't think you necessarily knew he would hit 62 home runs, but you knew Judge would get it together, but while that was going on, Anthony Rizzo was scorching, and if you look to the Yankees as a 99-win team in 2022, but remember that there were a lot of difficulties in the second half, that first half just absolute devastation of the rest of the league. A lot of that was because in that first month, Anthony Rizzo was just carrying that offense. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And we've seen stretches like that before from him. You know, he's had a long career where, um, you know, he's a guy who's capable of putting up over 30 home runs. Like he's done it many, many times. So, you know, I'm looking forward to this season uh, now that, you know, Anthony Rizzo's got the his own contracts, you know, stuff kind of behind him now. Um, he can just kind of put his head down and go to work and, you know, hopefully get back to the World Series for the first time since uh, he helped the Cubbies win it all in 2016. You know, I think uh, Anthony's going to have a lot to 
a lot to do with that. If the Yankees are to get where they want to go this year, and um, you know, it's it's not just his offense though. I mean, as as we mentioned, like his defense at first base is just incredible. Like the infielders just have so much trust in him. They know that like they don't have to be perfect. They just fire it over toward first base, and he's probably going to scoop it up. But then in the story, you know, I get into you know some of the other things too, like getting hit by pitch. Like <laughs> he's like, you know, one of baseball's all-time greats in this. He in, with four more, I think, hit by pitches this year. He's going to be the all-time leader among left-handed batters for getting hit, uh, which is a stat that I necess- wouldn't necessarily want to sign up for if I were a baseball player, but you know, he's a tough dude and um he just goes out and he helps the team win in, in so many different ways. And uh I mean, who wouldn't love to have a guy like that in your clubhouse? You mentioned the World Series, Nate. The Yankees have a lot of really good players, that's for sure. They have very few players who have won a World Series, and Anthony Rizzo is one of them. And and to say nothing of the fact that the context in which he won the World Series, you you know that that was a uh, you know winning with the 2016 Cubs. You know all the baggage that came along with that. It reminds me of you know some of those players you know on the Red Sox from '04 when they did that. And this you looked at these guys and you you imagined what they overcame and how valuable that was. I mean. What do you think that means for a clubhouse like this? Because we, you you said it. We know what he does with his bat. We know what he does with his glove. And we've seen how comfortable he is as a clubhouse leader. How much of a factor do you think just the idea that this guy won and this guy played a huge role on one of the most significant World Series championships of our lives actually means? I think it's massive. And I, I think uh, you saw that during last October when – you know, the Yankees, we were facing Cleveland in the ALDS. And like you said, there's a, a lot of guys in there who don't have that World Series experience, who didn't even have postseason experience necessarily. There's, you know, young guys on the team. And when you have a guy like that in the middle of the lineup who's been there, who is not just been there, but thrived uh, in the biggest situations, um, it's huge. It's just he's a, a calming presence. You know, everybody kind of follows the lead of the manager and the leaders on their team. And when you have guys like that who are just kind of steady and don't let the moment, you know, get too big and then go out and, you know, hit a big two run homer in the first game to, to give the Yankees a win in that opener. It's just huge. And, um, you know, I think every young player on this team, whether they're a fellow infielder or an outfielder or even a pitcher can learn something from, watching Anthony Rizzo and the way he goes about his business. Every single time we do this, every single time we talk about these features we write, we'll mention, look, I mean, I wrote a story about Aaron Judge in this issue. You wrote a story about Anthony Rizzo. I don't know if you've specifically written about Anthony Rizzo before, but we certainly have. We've certainly written plenty of stories about Aaron Judge. It always is a little bit of a challenge to be like, man, how am I going to do this one? So you naturally went for Donnie Brasco, and and you went straight (laughs) for the, the, the way that a very large ethnic community kind of fell in love with Anthony Rizzo, who, and it should be said, who, who showed up at the same time as Joey Gallo, and it became a very fun thing of, you know, the two Italian-Americans coming to town, in a sense. But but there was such great stuff you put in there about the way that he has connected uh, with Yankees fans because of, you know, some of his Italian roots and just some of the his, his mannerisms and things like that. And I, I, I absolutely love that part. I love that we have a, a story in Yankees magazine in 2023 that's leading with Donnie Brasco. <laughs> 
Well, you know, I mean, he's he's really proud of his Italian heritage. And, um, you know, with the World Baseball Classic kind of coming down the pike as I was writing this story, um, I just started like going back and poking around to see how he did in the 2013 World Baseball Classic when he played for Team Italy. And, you know, I found a lot of really great stuff uh, uh, that he said at the time about just how proud he was to represent uh, Italy and um, he actually played really well, had a huge hit and, and helped them advance out of the first round, which was really unexpected for them. So I was like, huh, well, that's that's really good timing. And then there was a, a lot of different aspects of his background that I feel a lot of our readers and a lot of Yankee fans uh, would really connect with. I mean, even myself, you know, it's like I'm not Italian, but you live in North Jersey for long enough. I mean, we're all a little Italian. So, you know, talking about his <laughs> his Lyndhurst roots, like his parents are from Lyndhurst, where, you know, the, the pastry shop on Ridge Road has, sells the uh, Anthony Rizzo Italian ice flavor, like little things like that, um, I, I think just make for a fun story, a fun read and, and you know, like I said, I, I think a lot of our readers, I, I mean, you see it when you walk around the stands at Yankee Stadium, like there is a lot of love for Anthony Rizzo. There's a lot of number 48 jerseys out there in those stands. So, um, you know, I kind of leaned into that a little bit and hopefully people enjoy it. It's actually been a funny thing for me because with Tommy Canely back in the Yankees now, you know, we're going back and we're doing some stuff on him and getting some old pictures of Tommy can old pictures like from three years ago when Tommy Canley was a Yankee and he's wearing number 48. And it's not like Rizzo has been here that long, but it feels crazy to see someone else in 48 <laughs> because I, I feel like you do see so many 48 Rizzo jerseys that it's just like, just it, it, it's like 99 to me. It's like, okay, that's Judge 48 is Rizzo, but you're looking at a picture from 2019 of Tommy Canley wearing 48 and it's like, huh, that wasn't that long ago actually. <laughs> it's so funny how like we associate jersey numbers with yankees players like that you know when we did the photo shoot with aaron judge for the the spring training version cover where he's holding up you know the 62 jersey to to represent the 62 home runs he hit last year like my first thought was like hey that's java's jersey <laughs> or like seeing carlos Radon uh wearing 55 this spring i'm like I, I can't not think of hideki matsui whenever i see a number 55 yankees jersey so yeah you know these guys they make it their own when you do special things in pinstripes whatever number it is on the back of that it, it doesn't matter that your last name isn't on there people are going to remember who wore that number and what you did while wearing it. What you did while doing it, certainly what his dog did while uh, trying to encourage Aaron Judge to resign. It became a, a really fun thing for a lot of Yankees fans that obviously Aaron Judge and Anthony Rizzo are good friends. Apparently their dogs are very close as well. And I, I guess Rizzo kept sending Judge pictures of his dog. I think the dog's name is Kevin, if I'm not mistaken. What a great name um, for a dog, Kevin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, he does everything, I guess, uh, you know, a little bit of a uh, canine general managing roster construction, whatever you want to say, uh, the man can do it all. Hey, whatever works, you know, it's like, it's a long grind, the baseball season. So you got to have fun. And <laughs> I, I think uh, Anthony Rizzo certainly, you know, stirs the pot well in that regard. So, you know, we're sitting here, I, I can't believe opening day is only two weeks away. It's like, blows my mind but uh i'm looking forward to a great season and uh i think he's going to be a huge part of it you do mention opening day look like you said two weeks from today and i think it's actually a good time to mention because this is actually 
kind of the last episode ever of the Yankees Magazine podcast, at least in this form, because our next episode, which is going to come out on opening day, we are rebranding as the New York Yankees official podcast, which is pretty exciting for us. It's, 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 it's a change in name more than scope, but one thing that you're going to be seeing from us a lot in the coming year is a lot more exclusive player interviews, really deep stuff, 20 minutes or so where we can get into some real topics. Plus, we're still going to be talking about news from the Yankees. We're still going to be talking about our stories and everything like that. But we're excited. We're going to have a lot more player content, a lot more reasons uh, to just you know, listen in to, to hear everything that's going on and really to get to know some of these guys in ways that you don't always get just from one quote here or there in a story. So I'm really excited about it. And we have big things planned. But it's just crazy to me because that's our next episode now, Nate, because two weeks from now, it's opening day. You assume as things stand right now, you have Garrett Cole standing on that mound ready to face the San Francisco Giants. And, you know, off we go for that night and then for that day, I should say, and then 161 more until it all really matters. So I, I, I'm overwhelmed in a sense. We still have a lot of work to do before we're ready for the season to start, but it's upon us, man. It is. I mean, my head is spinning trying to uh, just get through this week and make sure that we have a uh, an amazing yearbook on sale on opening day at Yankee Stadium, as well as a brand new April issue of Yankees Magazine. Uh, we're getting close to the finish line, but we still got uh, quite a bit of work to do before we're, uh, you know, rolling, rolling these things off the printing press. So, yeah, it's going to be a, a you know, a whirlwind few days, and then we're going to look up and uh, opening day is going to be here. So I'm ready. Hopefully I'm looking out my window now at the snowflakes coming down. So hopefully uh, March 30th looks a little better weather wise than it does today. Absolutely. But in the meantime, you do still have two weeks to read all the stories in our spring issue. Certainly, we spoke about Golden Era, the story about George Steinbrenner buying the team 50 years ago. We've mentioned in the past that we have a story on Aaron Judge. We have a story on Austin Wells. And of course, we have New York or Nowhere. Nate, your story about Anthony Rizzo, which is just terrific and a, a really solid look at one of the bigger stories of the offseason that, again, I think everyone understands why it kind of fell where it did maybe in the hierarchy of uh, breaking news alerts from this Yankees offseason. But I think everyone knows that if uh, if there's a parade in the Canyon of Heroes for the Yankees uh, this coming November, a lot of it will have been started on that day when Rizzo resigned his deal. Nate, you did such a good job on it. I loved reading it. I loved editing it. And I love uh, the fact that it's out there. Our fans can read it. And that, you know. We are one issue done, eight more to go. Let's do it. I'm ready. And to all of you, thank you again for listening to the Yankees Magazine podcast. I think that's the last time I'm ever going to say that, which is pretty exciting, but it is pretty cool and we do appreciate it. So I should point out, if you are already a subscriber to the Yankees Magazine podcast, you will automatically be moved over to the New York Yankees official podcast. You do not have to do anything. If you're not a subscriber already, again, subscribe now and you'll be moved over or March 30th, go ahead and subscribe to the New York Yankees official podcast. You can do it at yankees.com slash podcast or the podcast app of your choice. Of course, all of our stories are available online at yankees.com slash magazine. And we certainly encourage you to subscribe by calling 800-GO-YANKS or visiting yankees.com slash publications. Follow us on Twitter at Yanks Magazine. Like us on Facebook at Yankees Magazine. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Have a great day. and Go Yanks. Hey, this is Giancarlo Stan. If you like what you're hearing, why don't you rate and review us? And while you're at it, tell your friends to subscribe. Thanks so much and go Yankees.
Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 